Shalom, and welcome to this week's class, The Freedom to Be, subtitle, Transcending to True Self. Okay, let's start off with the, as always, with the um, modern-day issue, then we'll get into the Kabbalah of it all, and then we'll wrap it back around and make it all very practical. So, the topic here is freedom. The greatest contradiction for the human being is freedom. It's a huge contradiction that the humans struggle with over and over and over. The human soul fights for freedom, while the human body demands discipline. Medically, Maimonides explains that the change of a cycle, meaning a habit pattern, is the beginning of ailment. Child psychologists are in agreement that the child needs and actually demands discipline. The soul, however, fights for freedom, in, with not, in which nothing needs to be and everything simply is. Now, on a mystical level, anything that has a source cannot experience true freedom. And the logic is, for it is defined by its source, and it cannot experience what it doesn't have. Meaning that if it didn't receive it from its source, it can't have it. Thus, everything is stuck, not free. Everything is stuck within the parameters of its source. Thus, the only true freedom that exists is within God. And I quote from Maimonides, Primary being, all the other entities require him, and he, blessed be he, does not require them nor any of them. And therefore, because God does not require anything from anyone, thus it is the true experience of freedom. Now on this note, let's take it a little bit further in Kabbalah. It is only because <coughs> the human being has within the core essence of his soul, and I quote to you, it's truly a part, a piece of God above that the human has true freedom of choice. Human being would not be able to have freedom of choice according to what we just defined. We have a source. But because within our soul, the core essence of a soul is truly a piece of God, therefore we have freedom of choice. Were the human to be only descending a descending product of a higher spiritual source, then the human could not have freedom of choice. For it would be trapped, behaving in a manner consistent with the makeup of its source. Yet, on the other hand, the human is made up of a psyche that is a reflection of the ten emanations. The outer layers of the soul itself is a reflection of its source image. The body, from the physical to the metaphysical, for example, from the brain to the mind, all work in patterns, create and protect their homeostasis, and are as workers following the blueprints of a genetic source. So from that level, there is no freedom of choice. The only freedom of choice that exists is because we have a piece of God within us. And thus, the conflict between the need of freedom and the inability to sustain it, once it has been obtained, 
The conflict stems from the fact that the road to achieve freedom and to maintain freedom is counterintuitive to the human mind and soul. This lecture will explore the antithetical coexistence of human freedom, how to achieve it, and how then to maintain it. Now, this lecture is based primarily on a mimer, a mystical teaching the Rebbe orally delivered on this Shabbat Bahalotcha in 1969 and then later edited for print in 1991, in which the Rebbe explores the mystical meaning behind Aaron the high priest kindling the menorah of souls in the holy temple, tabernacle. Okay, so that's what we're going to discuss. The counterintuitive and the con contradiction of the human looking, searching, demanding freedom. Okay, introductions. Number one, this week's Torah portion begins with God telling Moses to command Aaron concerning the daily kindling of the menorah in the Mishkan. The Mishkan was the portable holy temple until we arrived to Israel. In English, they call it the tabernacle. Mystically speaking, the seven-branch menorah represents the seven categories of the souls, which come from the seven emotion emanation, and each serve God in the genetics of its emanation. So every soul is going to have a source in one of those seven branches, and its service to God is through the genetics of its branch. Now, for example, there are souls whose service for God is love as that of a flowing water. Flowing water is the emanation of kindness. It flows smoothly. And there are souls who serve, whose service for God is the love of a blazing fire, emanation of strength, overwhelming, etc., so too with all the other five branches. And Aaron's job was to kindle these flames by arousing them and bringing forth their love for God. So here we see that there's a mystical dimension to this verse and commandment of Aaron kindling the candles of the menorah, the flames of the menorah. Okay, let's go to step number two. The source of the soul being compared to a candle comes from Proverbs. King Solomon says there, the candle of God is the soul of man. And the reason why the soul is being compared to a candle is found in the book called Tanya. And I'm going to read to you, quote to you from chapter 19. Like the flame of the candle, whose nature it is always to scintillate upwards, for the flame of the fire intrinsically seeks to be parted from the wick in order to unite with its source above. In the universal element of fire, which is in the sublunar sphere, as is explained in Eitz Chaim, what that means, the four elements in their sublunar spheres. And although it would thereby be extinguished and admit no light at all below if the fire down here would actually leave the wick and go back into its source, and even above in its source, its light would be nullified, nevertheless, this is what it seeks in accordance with its nature. That's just the physical property and nature of a candle. 
Now let's go to the soul. In like manner does the soul of man, including the qualities of his lower levels, ruach and nefesh, naturally desire and yearn to separate itself and depart from the body, its wick, in order to unite with its origin and source in God, the fountainhead of all life. Blessed be he. Though thereby, by the soul leaving the body and going back into its source, it would become null and void, completely losing its entire the, its entity therein, with nothing remaining of its former essence and being, nevertheless, this is its will and desire by its nature. Okay, so the nature, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more in detail later, the nature of the soul is to completely lose its entity. It has this love and yearning to nothing more than cleave to God and get lost within the bosom of God. Now, here is the question. If this is the very nature of the soul, its own genetics, to yearn for God with love, then why does Aaron have to kindle them? It's its nature. It's not something it has to acquire. So why does Aaron have to do anything for the soul? And now let's go to the next introduction. In order to understand this, let us start, let us, well, sorry, let us explore the teaching of our sages upon the verse, for if keep, you shall keep all the commandments. That's a verse in Deuteronomy, right? Now, I want to share with you what the Medrash says about this. Said Bar Kapara, the soul and the Torah are compared to a candle. The soul is compared to a candle, like the verse we said in Proverbs, candle of God is the soul of man. And the Torah is compared to a candle, as it states, also in Proverbs, for a commandment is a candle and the Torah is light. Kiner mitzvah v'Torah or. Now, he goes on to say, Bar Kapara, said the Holy One, blessed be he, to this man, the human being, my candle is in your hands, and your candle is in my hands. My candles, this is the Torah. Your candle, this is the soul. If you will keep, if you will be shamor, to my candle, the Torah and the mitzvot, I will keep your candle, the soul. If you extinguish my candle, I will extinguish your candle. From where, which verse do we know this? For it states, a verse in Deuteronomy, but beware and watch your soul very well, lest you forget. So we see that forgetting the Torah mitzvot would be a contradiction to being beware and watching over our soul. So the existence of our soul, the shamor, it being kept and guarded and elevated, as we'll soon see, depends upon us doing that for God's candle. Torah and mitzvot. And if we, God forbid, extinguish the Torah and mitzvot, that means we don't study Torah, we don't do mitzvot, then, God forbid, our candle, which is in God's hands, our soul, will be extinguished. Okay. Now, we see two concepts concerning the soul and the Torah from this teaching in the Medrash on that verse in Deuteronomy. Number one, 
the soul could be extinguished. And this would happen if we transgressed the Torah and the mitzvot. Number two, the soul could be elevated, shamor, kept, guarded. And that happens when we fulfill the Torah and the mitzvot. Now, in the essence, here it's going to start getting a little bit Kabbalistic. In the essence, this is talking about two different types of souls. The one that could be extinguished and the one that can't be extinguished but could be elevated. Now, to understand this, we're going to see what Kabbalah and Hasidus teach us upon a verse in Jeremiah. The verse in Jeremiah just says, And I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with seed of man and seed of beasts. Zera Adam, Zera Behema. Now, according to Kabbalah, what this means is that there's two types of souls. One category of soul is called seed of man, while the other is called seed of beast. Okay, why? Why seed of man? Why seed of beast? The mystical reason behind these two categories, and this gets mystical here, is because the soul, which is called the seed of man, comes from the divine world of unity called Atzilut. Now, why is it called man? Because there are different ways to spell the four letters of God's ineffable tetragrammaton. For example, the letter He can be spelled out He Aleph. Hey, 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 Aleph, hey. The letter Yud could be is spelled out Yud, Vav, Dalit. Now, because they can be spelled different ways, that's why in Kabbalah you have different names referred to in numbers. The name of 45, the name of 52, the name of 63, and the name of 72. Now, I want to just talk about that in the world of Atzilut, there is the name of 45. Now, if you add up the word man, Adam, you have Aleph, Talad, Mem, that is 45. Thus, the souls that come from Atzilut, in which there is the presence and the shine and the revelation of the name of 45, it is called souls of man. Now, the souls of beasts are the souls that come from the lower worlds, the worlds of identity, ego, spiritual but they already have their own identity it's not just unity of light and vessel and source there is the three there's the source and there's the light and there's the vessel everyone has an identity over there there is the revelation of the name of 52 now if you add up the word behema beast bet hey mem hey you will have 52 and thus there is a difference the souls that come from this world are called seed of beast. Zera Behema. Now, what is the difference between these two souls as we see them in this world? The difference is that the soul of Atzilut, the seed of man, when it descends into this world, it does not go through any descent and transformation. The same consciousness it has of the unity of God, that God is everything and everything is God, so too do these souls. See, we're talking about souls like Moses. We're talking about souls, the great souls, the souls of a Rebbe. We're talking about a different type of soul here. They live here all year with the ultimate consciousness 
of Yom Kippur, being that they, God is everything and everything is God, and they see God in everything. So such a soul stands no, no fear of extinguishing Torah and mitzvot, and thus being extinguished. Rather, it goes through elevations through Torah and mitzvot. However, the souls that come from the place of separation, the worlds of Bria, Yitzira, and Asiyah, and there's an arrogance and there's an identity, thus when it descends, and it goes through contraction after contraction, concealment after concealment, descent after descent, until it actually goes into the this physical world, into the human body, it could end up having this type of arrogance that leads to the notion of atheism, the notion of I don't have to do what God wants. I don't have to study God's Torah. And thus, over here there is the fear of him extinguishing the Torah and thus being extinguished. Thus the Medrash tells us two separate things, which is talking about two separate categories of souls. One, if you extinguish my candle, I will extinguish your candle. Those are the souls that are called seeds of beasts. And the, and the first thing God said before that actually was, I reversed the order, is that if you guard and you fulfill and you heed and you imbue and elevate my candle, the Torah, I will do that to your candle, the soul. And that is referring to the seed of man, Zera Adam souls from the worlds of Atzilut. Okay, now that we understand this, and, and by the way, just to share with you, that is also based on the teaching of King Solomon in Ecclesiastics, where he says, The spirit of the children of men is that which ascends on high, and the spirit of the beast is that which descends. And that's where you're seeing that Zera Adam, the souls that come from the seed of man, they always experience ascent, not descent. While the, the souls that come from the seed of beasts, their natural inclination is to go and descend and descend. Okay, now, why Aaron? Another introduction. Why does Aaron have to kindle the menorah? So I just want to share with you, in connecting what the Medrash says, that if you keep my candle, Torah, I'll keep your candle, right? I'll guard it. So Aaron, the reason why Aaron is the one to kindle the menorah in the Holy Temple is based on a verse in Psalms. Now this verse in Psalms says as follows, Like the precious oil placed upon the head, flowing down the beard, the beard of Aaron, which rests upon his garments. So we have the head, we have the beard, the beard is resting upon the garments, and specifically the verse speaks of Aaron. Now, according to Kabbalah and Hasidus, and I'm not going to explain here why, but this concept of the law of, of the beard of Aaron actually referred the oil coming onto the beard, the, the, the hair, the beard, and the garments, actually refers to the laws of Torah, and it is through the light of Torah that the souls get kindled and elevated. So because, mystically speaking, Aaron has the oil of the Torah, the light of the Torah, which comes through his studies of the laws of Torah, therefore he has the light of Torah with which he can kindle the souls, the menorah. Just like the Medrash says, if you heed my candle, the Torah, I will heed your candle, the soul. Okay. 
One last introduction, the flame of God. Now, we're going to turn to the Zohar and the way the Zohar is explained in Tanya. So the Zohar talks about Hayinuka. It's a child. That's what it says. There was a child. It a lot of times mentions this child that were taught things. Now, it says that the verse says, I'm going to give you a little bit of the background. The verse says, who is the wise person? He who has his eyes in his head. And what the Yanuka was asking was, well, what do you mean that's a wise person? Who doesn't have his eyes in his head? So the Zohar explains that what it means is that your eyes are conscious of what is upon your head. And what is upon the head of every single person? The Shekhinah, the Divine Presence. Now what does it mean that we have to be conscious that there's the Shekhinah upon our head? So here it goes and says that the Shekhinah is like a flame. My body is like a wick. However, there has to be oil which keeps the flame from leaving the body. And thus, when it says, who is the wise man who has eyes in his head, what it means is that the wise man is the person who's conscious that he has to continuously provide oil so that the flame of the Shekhinah, the God's presence, does not leave from him, his wick. And now he goes on and explains, what is the oil? The oil is good deeds. Mitzvot. Mitzvot has the perfect spirituality, which can serve as the oil that travels through the wick. We do the mitzvah. And that keeps the Shekhinah, the flame of the Shekhinah, alive and well upon our head. Comes the Alter Rebbe in Tanya, and he asks a question. Why do we need the spirituality and the divinity of doing mitzvot, good deeds, to be the oil to the flame of the Shekhinah? Why can't the divinity of our soul be the very spirituality that it will be the oil to keep the soul, the flame of the Shekhinah with me? And in order to understand this, the Al-Tarebbe explains something. And I'm going to quote Al-Tarebbe and I'm going to emphasize in the notes that I'm going to post later, you'll see I underline them. So he says like this, and I quote, It is that the soul of a person even if he be a perfect tzaddik, holy man, serving God with fear and love of delights, emphasis, does not nevertheless completely dissolve itself out of its existence. My soul, my soul, even the soul of a great holy tzaddik is always a something. Now, so as to be truly nullified and absorbed into the light of God to the extent of becoming one and the same absolutely. But the person remains an entity apart, one who fears God and loves Him. There's the I love God, I fear God. It is different, however, with the commandments and good deeds, which are all His blessed will. His blessed will is the source of life for all the worlds and creatures flowing down to them through the many contractions and the concealment of the countenance of the supreme will, blessed be he, and the recession of the levels until it was made possible for creatures to come into being ex nihilo. So when we talk about God's will as a source of life, being the life force of my soul, it gets different there. Because there it goes through all the contractions until, again emphasizing, separate beings that should not lose their identity. 
That's the way God allows for His will to go through the transformations, the contractions, the concealments, the descents, so that by the time it becomes the life force of my soul, my soul is not lost in the identity of God. There's the I. I love God. Now, the commandments, however, are different in that they are the inwardness of His blessed will without any concealment of the countenance whatever. The vitality that is in them, therefore, is in no way a separate being, but it is united and absorbed in His blessed will, and they become truly one with the perfect union. So what we're hearing over here is that the holiest of souls, to the righteous of people, they are a something, because the way the soul was brought into being here was through the life force of God, the will of God, through God going through contractions, creating concealments, so that the soul can be a somebody with freedom of choice to choose to serve God. Now, a mitzvah. The fact that this mezuzah, a piece of parchment, the height of an animal, made, written on with herbs that are, with, or with ink, that are made of herbs. When I look at this mitzvah, there isn't a I mezuzah that's willing to become a mezuzah. But rather when you look at the mezuzah and you kiss the mezuzah, it's because that mezuzah, that physical mezuzah, is nothing more and nothing less than absolute will of God. So therefore, a mitzvah because it has oneness with God, it never went through a contraction and a concealment in which it thinks it's something outside of the will of God, separate entity from the will of God. Thus, that mitzvah can become the perfect oil because it is in full unison with the Shekhinah, with God. Thus, the oil can become fully absorbed and one with the flame. However, the soul of no matter who it is, and as holy as it may be, will never become a oneness with God that it is not a somebody who chooses God. Thus, ultimately, that can't be the oil that literally becomes the flame. Okay. Now that we understand this, we can now understand what it means that God says that concerning the candle, if you will keep my candle, Torah mitzvot, absolute nullification, that's what we just said Torah mitzvot is, an absolute oneness and transparency, if you do that, then I will keep your candle, the soul, which on its own is an entity apart. My soul is a somebody. Meaning that God will give the soul itself the absolute nullification, oneness, and transparency to be found only in Torah and mitzvot. So the Torah and the mitzvot is offering me something that I don't have. I, my soul, can never have a true oneness with God as the oil that's absorbed into the flame. But Torah and mitzvot does have that. And by me keeping, guarding, observing, and studying Torah mitzvot, God says, if you watch my candle, I'll give that to your candle. 
you will be able to achieve the absolute self-nullification through which you can become one with me, capital M, says God. Okay, those are the introductions, and that was the larger part of this class. Now let's jump into the class itself, okay? Let's start the lecture. So as you know, I always start with giving you a list of what we're going to talk about, the mystical concepts. So we have today four things. Number one, natural love, chariot, inheritance. Number two, we shall do and we shall hear, obedience. Number three, le'imor, saying, absolute nullification. And number four, the freedom of joy. And let the amazement of Hasidus begin. So we're going to have to understand a little bit about what the Alter Rebbe said, that it is the very genetics of a soul that's like a candle, that it has this hidden love which wants nothing but to lose entity of self and to return into the oneness of God. Now, this absolute love, this hidden love is so strong that throughout generations we have witnessed self-sacrifice literally from Jews, whether they be scholars, religious, secular, throughout history we had every type of Jew who literally went through self-sacrifice rather than converting out of Judaism. Now, if that's something that has to be obtained to be able to experience that self-sacrifice commitment, then why do we find Jews of all parts of the spectrum of observance, spirituality, holiness, we find all of them being able to do this. Thus, it's because this is a genetic part of the soul, the neshama. Now the question is, where did the neshama get this from? So our sages teach us, it's because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were able to give us this inheritance, which is now in the very genetic of their offspring, that we have this hidden love to the point of absolute oneness, to self-sacrifice, not to be separated from God. As the Altar Rebbe used the words, because of this inheritance, a Jew, not he or she can, nor he or she wants to ever be separated from God. That comes from the inheritance of the matriarchs and the patriarchs. And now we want to know, and why were they able to give us this inheritance? So for that, we refer to a teaching in which says, it's in the Bereshit Rabbah, the patriarchs, they are the chariot. Okay, what does it mean? So I want to just give you what this, a, a, an example of what the Medrash says. And I quote to you from the um, Sefer HaBahir. It's not the Medrash, I'm sorry. Sefer HaBahir, uh, one of the earliest Kabbalah books. It says as follows. Said the attribute of kindness before the Holy One, blessed be He. All the days of Abraham on earth, I did not have to do my job because Abraham stands and serves in my place. Thus that means that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob literally became the chariots for the emanations of Atzilut. Now, what does that mean? So, let's talk about chariot. Chariot is a word used in Kabbalah. It's brought down in Jewish law concerning Maisim Markava, the secrets of the chariot. 
So where we first find a chariot to be explained in great detail is in the opening of the book of Ezekiel. The opening book of Ezekiel is a vision. And it's called the vision of Ezekiel, Ezekiel's vision. And it's also called the vision of the chariot. And over there he describes the chariot of God. Which, which from his description talks about, for example, that which is a throne. Now, in Kabbalah and Hasidus, when we talk about this word chariot, Markava, what do we talk about? We talk about the relationship between the chariot slash horse and the rider. And what we're primarily, but what we're primarily focusing on is that the horse and the chariot is absolutely subservient to the rider. The horses don't just go where they want. They're tied and they're, they're only doing heading to where the rider wants, their, wants them to go. Now, interesting enough, obviously the horses and the chariot have no relationship appreciation with the rider's motives. It just knows that it's being pulled to go in that direction. And that's the way it goes. So on one hand, the chariot has absolutely no appreciation of its own. It only has a self-nullification to do what the rider wants it to do. Yet on the other hand, we find something amazing. That it's only through the horses and the chariot that the rider can reach unprecedented places that it could never have reached on its own. Okay? So that's the Kabbalistic point of the chariot. And that means that because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob reached such a level of self-negation, transparency, and humility to the rider, capital R, the will of God, God, thus, they were able to now have that being a day with the chariots of the emanations of Atzilut, that all their offspring should come from, the souls of their offspring should come from this side of holiness. And the definition of holiness is humility, transparency, and self-negation to the rider. Okay? That's what we're understanding here now. Now, What's important in our understanding of this is that when a person, we, we said that the inheritance is hidden love. Now the definition of love and want always starts with the noun, pronoun I. I want, I love. There isn't just love exists. No, I love. Now, over here what we're saying is being that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob reached a level in their love to God, that they became absolute transparent chariots, where there was no I, there was just God to be loved. Thus, they were able to inherit to their offspring that each and every one of us, in the genetic hidden love that we received from Abraham, which he received through his being a chariot, thus in our love, there is self-nullification. So that is the genetics of every single soul. That a soul loves God to the point of self-sacrifice for God, but that this love isn't one of I, 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 capital I, love, but rather 
it comes with a, an obedience, a self-negation, a transparency, a humility that it's not about I love, but rather it's about God loved. Okay. Now, with this, I want to go to another point. And that is that the Markova, the chariot, is called in the Talmud, in Tractic Sukkah, it is called Big Thing, Davar Gadol. And why is it called a big thing? So it's explained in Kabbalah why is it called a big thing? Because it elevates the smallness to bigness. So in Ezekiel, after he explains, as part of explaining the whole chariot, I think it's verse 26, he says, And upon the chariot was as an image of that of an image of man. And in Kabbalah, this refers to, man refers to the six male emotions. Now the nickname for six male emotions, emanations, in Kabbalah is Ze'ir Ampin, small faces. Now, the chariot, we said, brings the rider, the small faces, the image of man upon the chair, to a place where it could not reach by itself. In Kabbalah, what this means is that the chariot elevates the small faces, six male uh, emotion emanations, to that of the supernal crown, which is known as Erech Anpin, which means long faces, which really we say, but when we talk in the, in the Hasidus, that refers to the infinite will. So being that it elevates the small emotions to the big will, infinite will, thus in Kabbalah we call the Markava, the chariot, a big thing. Davar Gadol Ze Masem Markava. Now, if there's a big thing, it means there's a small thing. And what we're about to say here is that when it comes to humility and transparency, the small thing, by being small, has a greater self-negation and transparency and humility than even the big thing, the markava. What does this translate to us in simple language? What this translates to us is that the small thing is defined in the same piece of Talmud of, uh, in Sukkah. It defines it as heaviest abaya verava. What this means, literally, it is the discussions of the two sages, Abaya and Rava. They both were students of the great Rava. Actually, Abaya was adopted by Rava too. Now, what happens here is that when we talk about heaviest Abaya and Rava, what we're really talking about is the laws of the Torah as they were discussed and defined by the sages such as Abaya and Rava. So the big thing is the Kabbalistic mystical chariot, total self-nullification of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through which they inherited for their offspring, that in our genetics there is this hidden love with a base of humility. However, what is the greater humility that is in the laws of the Torah? Now let's line this up. 
What that means is that we were the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and thus inherited their genetics before God gave us the Torah. There's seven generations from Abraham to Moses. Thus, we had this Markava genetics of having a selfless hidden love for God in the, in, in the being part and parcel of our soul. Seven generations, four seven generations before God gave us the Torah. And yet, nevertheless, we're saying that the small thing, which is the laws of the Torah, that is an even greater transparency and oneness with God than even that which we inherited from our forefathers, which we are taught were the chariot of God. How do you figure? Let's see. So we're going to go to the next topic, which is we shall do and we shall hear. Okay, so what happens when God is going to give us the Torah? God tells Moses, ask the Jewish people if they want the Torah. And what do the Jewish people say? We shall do and we shall hear. Giving precedence to the we shall do over the we shall hear, which is about obedience. And now I want to share with you what the Talmud and Tractic Shabbat, page 88, side A, says. Rabbi Elazar said, he was one of the sages, when the Jewish people accorded precedence to the declaration we will do over the we will hear, a divine voice emerged and said to them, who revealed to my children this secret that the ministering angels use? As it is written, quoting a verse from Psalms, bless the Lord, you angels of his, you mighty in strength that fulfill his word, hearken unto the voice of his word. Notice it first says fulfill and then hearken. At first the angels fulfill his word and then afterward they hearken. That's the end of the quote from the place, from the teaching in the Talmud of what the depth of we will do and then we will hear meant. And what that means is that the Jewish people by declaring and telling Moses such a level of obedience they were granted an even greater level of self-nullification, humility, and transparency than they had originally inherited from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And to understand this, let us understand why the laws of the physical mitzvot are called small thing. How could it be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, giants of giants, total, I mean, Abraham said the words, and I am but dust and ashes. We're talking about the absolute chariot. If there's ever an embodiment and source for us as their offspring to be able to have total transparency, self-negation, and oneness, humility to God, it would be from the fact that our forefathers, our patriarchs and our matriarchs were earned, became this chariot, and thus inherited that in the genetics of the souls of their offspring. But now, you're saying that what? That the Jews that were there by the desert at Mount Sinai, mind you, these were the Jews that later made a golden calf. And these are the Jews that keep on complaining. We want water. We want meat. We want this. We want that. We're not going to Israel. We don't like Israel. These Jewish people are the ones that when they said we will do and we will hear, they proclaimed such a level of obedience that through that, 
The Jewish people have obtained a level of transparency, humility, self-negation, and oneness with God that is even paramount to that which we received from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why? So now we're going to focus on the counterpart of the Markava. The Markava is called the big thing. And over there the Talmud says the little thing is about the laws of the mitzvot of the Torah. So let's see what's going on here. Okay. What happens is that, remember we said that what is a mitzvah? Why could the mitzvah be the oil and the soul on itself can't be the oil? Especially since the soul, as we just said, has the genetics of total transparency and oneness with God that we inherited from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, and Leah, Rachel. So why? Why is it only the oil of the Shekhinah, the ultimate experience of unity, is through mitzvot, the laws of doing mitzvot? Now, the answer we gave then in Tanya, as you recall, is that because the soul, regardless of where it comes from and what its genetics has hidden within it, it descends into a level of separate entity, into a level of I, and thus it cannot be the true oil. Now, the mitzvot, we said, is the true oil. Because the mitzvah is nothing more and nothing less, even as it's physical. Even as it's physical. When you ask someone, why are you doing that mitzvah? The ultimate true answer for every time a person does a mitzvah is because it is the will of God. The mitzvah is a will of God. Unlike the neshama, even though it is a piece of God, but the language we have in Kabbalah is peace of creator became creation. In other words, I am now me. And I don't experience... I mean, he's saying even tzaddikim, but definitely me. I don't experience in any form of fashion that everything is God and God is everything. I struggle with that abstract concept to overcome my arrogance and know that that is the ultimate truth. So therefore, the mitzvah, the small thing, that is the true oil. And now, it gives us an interesting teaching that why is it called small thing? The Markov is called the big thing because we said it elevates the small to the big. Remember, the small faces to the big face, the long face. However, the mitzvot are called small thing because the mitzvot is in the opposite direction. It's not about elevating from below to above. Rather, it's about the infinite will of God coming from above to below. However, without any transformation. Thus, the small thing is the absolute oneness and unity oil that's one part and parcel with the flame. Thus, when we said, we will do and we will hear, that obedience opened us up. What did we say we will do and we will hear? We will do your mitzvot. We will study and understand your mitzvot. Thus, we opened ourselves up to an unprecedented level of obedience 
beyond the inheritance of a soul, the genetic chariot inheritance, because ultimately the soul, even with its chariot inheritance from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of total transparency and humility and self-negation, is a something. However, through Torah and mitzvot, which is not a something, it is the will of God. Thus, by that obedience to this mitzvot, the mitzvot itself is an ultimate oneness of God. And through that, we who accept with obedience the Torah and mitzvot become open and are gifted with an unprecedented level of self-nullification that even, even, so to speak, what we got from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and what they experienced at a chariot didn't have. Okay. Now, not only, not only is that by the mitzvot, that the mitzvah itself is the oil. But what's about the person that does the mitzvah? What's about the person that studies the Torah? What's with him? So there, we're going to go into yet another interpretation here. That the concept of the small things is not just that the divine infinite will descends into physical, that this is the law, this animal is kosher, this is what tefillin is. This is what Shabbat is. This is what the Shabbos candles are. It's not only that it descends into a physical candle that every woman out there now, the Jewish woman and daughter, is going to light in a couple of hours. It's not just that, oh wow, I'm doing a physical thing, which is the embodiment of the spiritual. But rather, there's another level here. And that is, and let's talk about how it reflects in the human being. It says, when it came to the Ten Commandments, right? After we told God the obedience, we will do and we will hear. God gave us the Ten Commandments. The opening verse to the Ten Commandments is, And God spoke all these words, saying. And as you remember from previous classes, when, the, when we spoke about the holiday of Shavuot, why the word lemor? And God spoke these words, saying. It should have just said, and God spoke these words. I am God, you got it, took out of Egypt, and so forth and so on. And we brought down the teaching of our sages that says that the word le'emor means to say, saying, it's when God empowered us that in our future Torah studies, I won't be stuck in I understand God's word. But rather to quote the verse in chapter 119, verse 172 in the book of Tehillim, Tan Lishoni Imra Secha, my tongue will proclaim your words. That means that God gifted us with such a oneness and transparency and self nullification with Him, with the will of God, and with the master of the will. That my mind, my brain and my mind become nothing more than a tongue that is proclaiming your words. And this is the ultimate experience of the soul to be freed from having to be a separate identity that has to struggle with ego. Identity. But through Torah and mitzvot, 
we can embrace the truest, the truest facts about who we are. God is everything, and everything is God. And that, and that is what it said, what the Medrash is saying. If you guard my candle, if you study Torah and mitzvot, then the candle of the soul, what does it mean the candle of the soul? What it means is the absolute obedience, the absolute self-nullification. You won't be stuck no more in you are you and I am me and we can never become truly one, is what God's saying. If you follow up on that, we will do and we will hear to my candle, Torah and Mitzvot, then I will give your candle its ultimate experience of self in which it is one with the Shekhinah. It is one with God. And now, one more thing and then we're going to close it up. One more concept. And that is the freedom of joy. So we're talking about the ultimate self-negation. We're talking about the ultimate transparency. We're talking about the ultimate humility. To the point in which the Alter Rebbe describes the, defi the definition of the word small, davar katan, katomti. Jacob said, I am small when he prayed to God. I am little, insignificant, and undeserving of your kindness to save me from my brother Esau. That's what Jacob said. Now, what is the definition of the word, I am small? So it's explained in Tanya that what that means is that I see myself as a leftover, as an unnecessary extra that has no need. There's no need for me. What does that mean? That mean what is that supposed to mean? A human being supposed to have that. What it's supposed to mean is that ultimately speaking, we have to see ourselves, not that I, I am necessary, I am important. It's not the messenger, it's the message. And we need to have a transparency to the message. In other words, by me being able to embrace that has nothing what to do with me and who I am, my color here, my color eyes, how smart I am, how stupid I am, how kind I am, how mean I am, how loving I am, how hating I am. No. It's about the mission, the divinity that flows through me. That is the ultimate definition of self-negation. Where I become nothing more than a transparent pipe through which it flows. So on the one hand, we're talking about the ultimate self-negation. And through this self-negation, we said, God says, you watch my candle, I'll watch your candle. And what does that mean that I'll watch your candle? For that, we have to go to the Zohar in volume 3 that says that ultimately, Yisrael v'kuchabarichu kulachad. Israel and Holy One, blessed be He, are all one. The truest ultimate identity is that we are one with God. Thus, in order to reach this being one with God, I have to remove all the arrogant with restraints upon me that don't allow me to experience 
that I am one with God and ultimately God is everything and everything is God and thus everything that I thought of myself, I am rich, I am smart, I am strong, I am handsome, I am this, I am that, I am the son of, I am the... No, that, that, put that aside. By freeing myself from that and keeping God's candle, the definition of true self-negation, to be nothing but for what is carried within you, that's how we reach the truest freedom to be who we ultimately are. And that is, you saw the Kuchabrich Kulachat. The Jew and God is ultimately one. That is what my soul is. Now, over here is something very interesting. Because the fact, here goes to a deeper point. What does it mean the freedom to be me? The point that I am one with God. What that means is, in other words, the true identity of me is that of God is everything and everything is God. Thus, ultimately speaking, there is the truest identity of my soul, which is the identity of God. And therefore, when I experience the freedom of anything that interferes with that recognition, I'm able to do Torah and mitzvot with joy. True freedom of joy. And now let's go to the closing. It's almost the hour is almost up. Let's go to closing. In closing, we can now understand the dichotomy of the human being in which the soul fights for freedom and the body fights for discipline. The greatest and truest freedom of all is the absolute joy of being oneself. The joy that can be bought by money or power is not the experience of freedom. Rather, freedom is only the experience of overcoming all obstacles from without and from within that denies one the truest experience of being himself. And being himself here means to be free from hormonal drives, intellectual blockage, and emotional baggage, which keeps us locked in a pattern contrary to who we truly are. Thus, the soul's fight for freedom and the body's demand for discipline, humility, transparency to the soul, and self-negation are truly one and the same. That's what true freedom is all about. The ultimate freedom to be the true me, and not even to be blocked or stuck in blockage by me from being true me. That I think, that I don't understand, that I, I, I am stuck in, in feeling that this is not right, or I don't want this, or I don't love this, or I hate this, when we can have discipline to bring that down, then we can have the freedom of being who we truly are. And that's the joy of being self, truly one with God. Thank you.